0: Well, good afternoon and good to be with everyone on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon on what is the beginning of Black History Month. Uh, We are excited to begin our first table talk, a conversation on race, which will be a 30 minute webinar series offered every first Wednesday of the month from 12 to 1230 for the year 2022. And these webinars will be hosted by the beloved community. My name is Erwin Lopez and I'm a member of the beloved community alongside the Bishop's Anti-Racist Task Force. The goal of our webinar is to bring awareness to the anti-racism work in the Florida Conference, to equip and support those who are integrating anti-racism into their ministry and to their lives. And because we believe anti-racism to be an act of discipleship, we believe that this is how we love God and we love our neighbor. So today's webinar series, we have three very gifted speakers and speakers who come with a lot of experience, and today we will be focusing on the basics of anti-racism. I'm very excited to introduce our speakers and especially our first speaker. Our first speaker is Dr. Edgardo Colon-Emerick. He is the Dean of Duke Divinity School. He's also the Irene and William McCutcheon Associate Professor of Reconciliation and Theology. And he's also the Director of the Center of Reconciliation at Duke Divinity School. Um, so without further ado, Dr. Colon, uh, the floor is yours and thank you so much for your time
1: peace with you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful to be with you uh, this afternoon to share what I would term as some theological reflections. that'll be my focus on what does it mean to be anti-racist in a Wesleyan way. Uh, but first, just a, a few biographical notes uh, that I would like to share. that so w- I'm a native of Puerto Rico, that's where I grew up. I was born and raised there. And Puerto Rico is an sto- a, uh, island that has been described as having four stories. And, and, uh, and the, the first story, the, the, the bottom floor in many ways, is the Afro-Caribbean uh, 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 floor with, and a white European ceiling. And, and so a culture where I grew up where notions of race work out differently than in the United States and yet uh, racism is present there in very profound ways that have shaped all of us who grew up in the island. Uh, and so that even as I come to the United States and enter into the context of a place like where I'm located now in the American South, in North Carolina, it's a story that is a global story, uh, the story of racism. And the, therefore, the call to be anti-racist uh, is a call that is present for Christians in many, in all parts of the world and for the people called Methodists in particular. And so for the people called Methodists, how I think of, I want to suggest that there are three things I want us to consider for being anti-racist in a Wesleyan way. And the first thing I would say is that we need to begin with the end. Uh, that is to say, begin with the end, not simply what are we against, anti, but what are we for, what are we pro? And that we, the end is new creation. The end is God's reign. The end is the kingdom, new humanity. And so when it comes to then starting with the end, it's then it's, I, I offer for, for consideration that that end is symphonic. Uh, that the end is, and, and the end to which we, we are going as, as human beings, uh, the end that God has prepared for us is symphony because God loves symphony. God loves the diversity of the universe and of creation and of peoples sounding together. Uh, we live in a world of clamorous uh, unison, of flashing symbols, little harmony. Uh, God's vision for the view, future is Pentecost. Uh, it's Pentecost where the diversity of languages, uh, of accents, uh, of peoples uh, come together to sing a praise to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Sarah, Rachel, and and uh, and uh, and. And Sarah and so that in this in this so that the vision of the end we begin with the end as Methodists because we are a people who have been called to spread scriptural holiness to lean towards the end to go on to perfection and that end is also holy this is the vision of Revelation 7 of a great multitude out of every tribe and nation and people and language gathered around the throne around the lamb who have been washed in the blood of the lamb Uh, and because in the book of Revelation diversity can serve God or the devil, it's, it needs to be redeemed uh, mm-hmm. because all diversity is fallen, because all creation is fallen, but precisely for this purpose, God has come into the world to redeem uh, creation, to redeem diversity, restore it to its original purpose, which is why we have this wonderful image in the book of Revelation of the tree uh, with, with leaves for the healing of the nations, or, uh, or another way of translating, for therapy of the ethnicities. And so that there's a promise then that, uh, that that these that our stories can be healed, and they need to be healed because they are fallen, and they are fallen in many complex ways. So uh, I would say that th- that's the first thing I would want to think of that being anti-racist in a Wesleyan way. Start with the end. Where are we headed to? And then the way. The way is grace upon grace, and the first grace I would want to signal would be the grace of lament the gift of naming the injustices and of crying. The cry the cry to the Lord of saying, how long? The cry to the Lord that says, we need you, Lord, this hour. And that that cry and the tears in that cry are also what allow for seeing reality as it really is, rather than the the, the, the way in which reality has been covered up by all kinds of stories that seem to, uh, presented in ways that are untrue about what is really happening. The grace of hope is, is not possible without the grace of lament, without the naming of the wounds and the cry that comes from being excluded, from being, being cast aside. And that grace of hope is tied to mystery, the mystery that we hear in places like 1 John 3, of that we do not know what, what we will be. Uh, we will know because what, what, what we will be has not yet been revealed. And that our, there is a way in which our story, does, it, it ends in mystery, a mystery that is hidden in Christ. So that's the second point that I'd say, begin with the end first, the way is grace upon grace or being anti-racist. And third, we're a wayfaring people. We're on a journey uh, to reform the nation and in particular, the church, to spread scriptural holiness over the land, that, that, that founding principle for Methodists, requires us to a long journey. And we're in this journey for the long haul, a journey that includes the cultivation of racial justice as a holy habit. A whole certain, more than simply uh, attending events in compliance, what we're seeking to do is to create holy habits that make us racially just people, uh, that make us relate to each other in ways that foster respect, uh, that foster a sense of Belonging of needing one another, and ultimately of needing God also to come into the picture and rectify and, and 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 restore us to God's many splendored image. So, what I would conclude here, my these very 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 sketchy, uh, there's a uh, not sketchy I hope, but there's of brief theological reflections, is this question: Do we have a common future? I think that the work of anti-racism of dismantling. Is predicated on a vision of a common future, on constructing something new, and that it is that constructing something new requires precisely a common vision of the future. Uh, there was a story I read of, uh, of a, a Muslim cleric in Bosnia uh, who was asked about the possibility of building a common life together in the, after a civil war, and and he said something that really struck with me. He said. Uh, people do not reconcile with the past until they feel they have a common political future together. And I think that there is something profound in that, that it is the vision of the future, the future in Christ that commits us to being anti-racist, to developing racially just holy habits and to a journey of grace upon grace. That I think would be one Wesleyan way of being anti-racist. Thank you very much. Thank you so much
0: Dr. Colon for your reflections and thank you so much for all the work that you're doing to bring reconciliation in the North Carolina Conference and and at Duke Divinity School. Um, Our second speaker I'm very excited to introduce is the Deaconess Garlinda Burton. She is the Director for Resource Development for the Denomination's General Commission on Religion and Race. And as a Director for Resource Development Garlinda expands and implements a comprehensive, diverse resource program that increases knowledge within the church of intercultural differences and competencies, anti-racism, equity, and justice. And so without further ado, I would like, Garlinda Burton, um, the floor is yours, and thank you for your time, too.
2: Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone, and God bless. Um, I'll jump right into it. Um, the, I believe that the work of anti-racism is a challenge for our church. Uh, and uh, uh, Dr. Emrick laid out a lot of the things that I would have said, so I'm not going to say those things. But I think there are they're, they're four, four steps, I think, for Christians uh, That are difficult steps, but they're doable steps for us to begin to dismantle racism and not only dismantle it outside of ourselves, but we have to do a lot of dismantling within the church, and so the first thing I would say it's sort of like a 12 step program. I cannot tackle anything that I want to change about myself or change about the world until I call on God. So the first step in a 12-step program is to admit that we by ourselves are powerless to overcome these things unless we are willing to call on God and the beloved community to work with us. Um, We did not get into this, this place of racism sort of as a cancer eating up our church and society. We didn't get there by ourselves. We didn't get there overnight. And so we have to admit that that what has been erected is something that is, we are powerless unless we call on God and the beloved community to work together. I think the second thing that's very important and it is very challenging in this nation right now is to engage in some truth-telling and confession. Uh, Just yesterday, I read that a a conference in Missouri has banned a book by a Pulitzer Prize winning Black author, uh, Toni Morrison, because of the themes of race that it deals with. Tennessee, we have banned a book called Mouse about the Holocaust, because it's difficult. Um, And what I've seen, there's a meme that's going around with one of the girls from the Little Rock, uh, Little Rock Nine being escorted to school by police officers. And the meme says, so um, we participated talking about white folks, particularly this is stuff that we did, but we don't want our children to know that we did that and our grandchildren to know, and that's a very stark reality. Truth-telling must be part of what we do, confession and truth-telling. The fact of the matter is the United Methodist Church and our predecessor organizations have often been on the wrong side of racial justice issues. We participated in Native American genocide that has decimated the indigenous community in the United States and around the world we were the, one of the primary uh nations to engage in enslavement of African people which has had generations of impact on African-American and the African diaspora not just our families but the actual churches our actual congregations our pastors have preached segregation from the pulpit um our denominations split like many overs o- others over the incident of slavery we split Along theological as well as ideological lines, where many of us, and I'm from the Southeast, I grew up in the in Western North Carolina conference. I live in Tennessee, and we still have churches that have the cornerstone of the Methodist Episcopal Church South, which split not over states' rights, not over it split over the issue of whether or not. Enslaving people was compatible with Christian teaching and the Southern church said it was the United Methodist Church's predecessor folks participated in Japanese internment. We participated in anti uh, anti desegregation in the 50s and 60s. We participated in we're participating now in um, immigration oppression with people who are newcomers into our communities. And even in the early days of U.S. immigration, we forced people, not just people of color, but white people to give up their languages and their cultures in the name of assimilation and making a certain group of people more comfortable. We've got to tell the truth about that if, if God is going to help us. You know, confession is part of what we do as Christians. to to be able to move forward. The third thing is um, that I would say, and it echoes what what my brother, uh, Dr. uh, Dr. Emmerich said, is we've got to believe that God can work miracles through us. I believe that God can make us better. And I believe that the church can be the change agent that God has created to make the planet better than it was when we got here. I believe that, or I wouldn't do this work. I get disheartened sometimes, I get frustrated by it, but I believe that God can transform my own soul. And so God can transform this church to do good in the world, to be an anti-racist, Christ-centered, love everybody beacon in this world. And we have to believe that to receive it. And finally, I would say, we require, it requires that all of us engage actively in discipleship that is anti-racist at its core. And I'll tell you a quick story. I am a United Methodist deaconess. I have a deaconess sister here, Liz uh, Liz Shadbolt. She is a young white woman. Liz is in her forties. To me, that's young. She's my daughter's age, but we're sisters. But um, Liz has sons that are now A junior in high school and a junior in college. And I have watched Liz over the years raise those white, young white men to be anti racist. They had action figures from the time they were children that were black and brown. They were very active in. Uh, social justice, particularly racial justice concerns in the community. The church that she attends was very active in uh, anti-immigration repression uh, laws, very active in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Liz walks that talk. And so her boys now, they're young men, it is like second nature to them because not only did their parents nurture the them in this way, but the church has nurtured them in this way. And so I believe that the church has an opportunity as one of the most influential social social institutions in this country to nurture children, youth, and young adults, not to be silent, not to be afraid, not to pretend like racism is not our our issue, but to teach our children to be anti-racist, disciples of Jesus Christ. And so that is my call for us today. There is, there is something for all of us to do. And once we harness, harness the power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives, in our churches, in our districts, in our conferences, then we will transform. It's not a matter of maybe we will, but once we do that, the church will be the agency that transforms the world for good. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much, Gerlinda, Mm -hmm. for that inspiring word and for that reminder of anti-racism as an act of discipleship. And I want to commend you and everybody who's in this call today as we continue to integrate this into our ministries, into our lives. I want to introduce Reverend Simeon Law next. Um, But before I do, I just want to remind everyone, if you have a question, go ahead and put it in the Q&A. And if we have time at the end of today's webinar, we'll, we'll answer your question as best as we can. Okay, so back to Reverend Simeon Law. Reverend Simeon Law is a friend of mine and I'm very excited that he's here with us today. We went to seminary together. And he's also the district superintendent for the New York Annual Conference. Uh, Reverend Simeon Law holds a bachelor's degree in engineering in computer science from Cornell University. And he also earned his MDiv at Duke Divinity School. He's a child of the New York Annual Conference and grew up in Rockland Rockland County. His parents, James and Stella Law, are Chinese immigrants who met and got married at Chinese United Methodist Church in Chinatown. Uh, Reverend Law says that having to operate between different cultural contexts as he was growing up helped him become the person he is today. He's a listener, an empathizer, and a natural advocate for others. So, Reverend Simeon
3: Law, thank you for your time and the floor is yours. Thank you, Reverend Lopez, uh, for this opportunity, and and thanks also for the ongoing work in the Florida Annual Conference, uh, for Bishop Carter's support in in this work, and and certainly for uh, Reverend Hall Perkins, uh, who's gonna speak uh, later, who's leading some of these efforts in the conference. Uh, As I was wrestling with with how to to speak about anti-racism, I actually wanna start from a place that we might not start from, but I think uh, uh, Dr. Cologne took, took the, some of the words out of my mouth in terms of thinking about what we're aiming for, and that's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Uh, and also, I want to take a moment to look at the words in the baptismal covenant. So I've, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a, a hymnal out here, and this is from the baptismal covenant, and this is the first question. And the question is, on behalf of the whole church I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? So the first question is about uh, are, are, are you going to reject sin? And in, in, in another way of, I'm gonna phrase that is are you going to abstain from sin? Are you gonna try to keep sin out of your life? Now, Now the second question is also about sin, but it's a different question. And the second question is, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to not abstain from sin, but resist evil, resist injustice, and resist oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? So I really want to frame the work of anti-racism in the context of our baptismal vows right we we i think sometimes when we just talk about oh racism is bad we say we try to keep bigotry out of our hearts and say oh well, i'm not going to participate in that i'm going to try to keep that away from me I'll, I'll watch the words i say and and maybe you may even watch the thoughts in your in your in your mind and and the state of your heart but the call of discipleship is not just those things it's to take the step of active work of resisting sin in our world right and sin uh and and the sin of racism is one such sin that we are called to resist and i think that's to, uh, and i think sometimes these phrases come in and out of vogue and, and and i think the 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 use of the word the phrase anti-racism is about i think uncovering that aspect of of resisting racism is, isn't just saying Oh, I, I'm against X, Y, or Z, or, or I support this or that. Uh, it, it, it's about what are you doing to bring us closer to the goal, to the goal of the beloved community, to be the, the goal of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, right? It, this is an active work, and that's what we are called to do. You know, I, I, so to, to reflect on what some of this work may look like uh, is always going to be contextual, uh, but one of the things that i think we are wrestling with in our in our nation is we at some level we've now a greater recognition that we have a racist history, a racist foundation, but i think there's sometimes an error in which we try to on top of a racist foundation to build a colorblind or race neutral structure and think this is fine, we just have to take our, our bias, our bigotry, our hatred out of what we do, and, and that's enough. And, and sure, surely that's something we need to do. Uh, but the work of anti-racism means uh, discovering the past, acknowledging the past, uh, lamenting, as, as was said earlier, but then also thinking about how do we act differently into the future, live differently, to make decisions that actually resist the structure and flow of life that has been created for us. Um, so, and, and this is where it's where the rubber meets the road, where it gets hard. Uh, it, r- discussing anti-racism in a seminar is great, uh, but but anti-racism, uh, uh, our, our bishop always says, is it's a journey,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and it gets uncomfortable because at some point you talk about how we need to change our lives. So, so here I'm gonna. This, this is a an example this is i'm just making this up but it might sound like some churches um <clears throat> you know here in the new york area uh are where people live where communities are uh has really been shaped by race so uh, uh you know gentrification notwithstanding uh, what you saw over the decades has been a process of of white urban neighborhoods or or mixed urban neighborhoods in which uh, white residents moved out of the city and into the suburbs. And uh, that was not only a flight of people, but also a flight of of capital investment. Uh, You saw a decline in schools and opportunities in those neighborhoods that were left behind. And on top of this, we have churches, right? And so part of what you see in churches also is, if you ask yourself which churches are likely to have Large endowments which can sustain them through, let's say, for example, a two year period when, when the economy is not doing bad, not doing well because of a pandemic. Uh, uh, that's today. That's, not a, that's about the past being alive today. And if we are to be an anti racist uh, uh, church, if we are to be uh, working towards the kingdom of God, what does it mean to recognize this past that oftentimes our suburban, churches, our suburban white churches, have the benefit of financial strength that is intimately interwoven with the history of racism. Uh, Another example, in in New York State we have a a sexual abuse look back law. This has allowed sexual abuse survivors uh, to bring claims uh, regarding abuse that took place in the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, you have churches that have now received such claims in the past year. Uh, What does it mean for a church, an urban church, that is predominantly black and brown, to receive such a lawsuit, if at the time the abuse took place was actually a predominantly white congregation? What does it mean for us to be the body of Christ together, for them to be now facing a lawsuit And and again, this is some decades removed. Uh, The insurance, they might not be able to find insurance documentation. Insurance companies may have gone out of business. Uh, This is a congregation that, again, is already dealing with the fallout of white flight, of being saddled with a structure that, at many times, uh, was already uh, uh, undergone uh, years of, of, of deferred maintenance. And now, they are now being saddled with a lawsuit from a time when they were not uh, the folk who were present. Right? I mean, this is where the work of anti-racism gets difficult. It, it, it's, it's about understanding the past, uh, uh, un, uh, questioning the, the myths we have about who we are as a nation. It's about lamenting. It's about thinking not just about the past, but how the past is quite alive into the future. And this is where the conversation gets uncomfortable, but I think this is where the important work is. This is where we have to learn and practice grace, where we have to learn and practice uh, our, our, our unity as the body of Christ. And it's in this hard work that we actually work towards the kingdom or the kingdom of God. So uh, I, I, uh, I want to list of one book. I, I know people always recommend books, but uh, if you live in an area with uh, metropolitan centers, uh, with large cities, with sur- suburbs around it, I highly encourage you to read the book, The Color of Law uh, by Richard uh, Rothstein. And, and it's really eye-opening, and I think, it, it, um, I think it's a great place to start, to start asking the right questions and to start thinking about the decisions we are making today as annual conferences, as churches, and as a society. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Simeon. And thank you for that call to action. We wanna encourage everybody here to take the anti-racism pledge. And it's a pledge where you promise not just to learn about anti-racism, but do something about it. And we're gonna send everybody information on that with a follow-up email. Our last speaker today is the Reverend Lee Hall Perkins. He's an ordained elder in the Florida United Methodist Church, senior pastor of Mount Zion Church in Clearwater, Florida. And he serves alongside his wife, Jana Hall Perkins, as a Florida conference anti-racism coordinator. So he's your go-to person if you're in the Florida conference, him and his wife, if you wanna get more involved with anti-racism. So um, Pastor Lee, the floor is yours. All
4: right. Well, um, I got put at the last uh, end of our our panel discussion and uh, it's been a privilege to hear and listen from such great panelists today who've given so much um, great information and just maybe I I must have mistakenly uh, emailed my notes to all of them because they've just uh, mentioned everything. So uh, I, if I could just briefly touch on a, a few points that have already been raised, uh, especially wanna hone in on this this idea of, of truth telling, uh, which I think is so paramount to the work of anti-racism, uh, because there's no way that we're gonna move forward or make any headway in race relations if we do not seriously tell the truth. Um, uh, uh, J- Jamar Tisby in his book, The Color of Compromise, he writes, history and scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession and there can be no confession without truth. Truth telling is so very important for raising our, our awareness. Uh, about um, the many ways in which racism has permeated every facet of our life, uh, and and we we don't uh, for those who are of us who are not racialized people, um, we, we it is sometimes difficult to to carry that awareness, um, and so awareness is is just really I believe the process of active learning. It's the process of active learning. Um, so as as I and my wife engage people through, throughout the conference and others uh, with the work of anti-racism, the question is always: How do we fix racism? How do we overcome it? What what should we be doing? Um, and and how can we resolve this disparity? Um, and and that's that's the that's the go-to question. But we cannot always rush to quick fixes and quick wins. Okay. Uh, we must really seriously take the time to learn the history of how we've come to be uh, where we are in terms of race relations. Uh, And so uh, so sometimes we dismiss um, learning as being an inactive uh, or uh, not real action, but no active learning is an action. uh, um, uh, That is part of our work as uh, disciples who are seeking to be anti-racist. And so, part of raising your awareness uh, about uh, racism and being involved in the movement of anti-racism involves, uh, I believe, a rereading of scripture, uh, rereading of scripture through the lens of, of liberation, through the lens of of, of, of noticing the um, the differences in in, in tribes in. Uh, people groups within scripture and how they relate to each other, uh, rereading scripture in such a way that sees uh, God not just as a savior of the soul, uh, but one who is intimately uh, concerned about every facet of your life, your physical well-being, your financial well-being, everything that concerns you, rereading scripture in that way. Um, and, and that's how we're able to, I, I believe, better achieve our goal as Methodists of, of, of spreading scriptural holiness uh, if, if, we are real, if we're willing to do the hard work of rereading scripture uh, in such a way that we might not have uh, done so before, grown up doing in our churches. Uh, raising our awareness includes, you know, learning the larger history of, of racism, Uh, here and across uh, the globe, learning about the invention of race, that race is not uh, a biological designation, Uh, learning uh, church history and how the church has been complicit uh, with racism, but also learning the ways in which the church has has been uh, a champion against racism, because uh, we need also examples uh, uh, and models that we can um, um, pattern our lives and our work of anti-racism after. And so, uh, and the last piece of, I think, raising awareness about uh, racism is um, developing self-awareness, okay? Uh, And and this is something that we all can do, uh, raising our awareness of, of our place in the world, raising our awareness of, of how we are in relationship with others. What does our uh, circle of friends look like? What does our family tree look like? What raising that, And that's all a part of, of, of raising our awareness. And the last thing I'll, I'll touch on is um, the work that is happening in the conference. Uh, so we are, are, are in this, this first phase of truth telling, raising awareness. And and part of it has been, uh, for the last several months, collecting data on clergy compensation and the disparities uh, that uh, exist along uh, racial lines. And so um, there is a report uh, that will be given um, during annual conference about um, the disparities that exist uh, in our conference as it relates to to, uh, clergy compensation. Uh, and so if I could just sum it up, there are disparities across the board, no matter whether you're part-time, full-time, full elder, provisional elder, part-time uh, local pastor, there are disparities across the board as it relates to compensation and, and, and race. And so uh, you'll be able to see those numbers in black and white. Uh, and and this is something that, that, that clergy of color have been saying for years. Uh, but now, uh, we're putting it in black and white and we're, we're going to tell the truth about, about the disparities and not only tell the truth, but but also have a time uh, for lament and also um, bring uh, begin to think of ways of how we can live in a more equitable way as it relates to clergy compensation. So that's been a, a, a lot of our work uh, recently uh, and we're also uh, hoping to move into a phase uh, of uh, Racial audit uh, for the conference, and so uh, going through um, through the conference conference wide, every department, every ministry, uh, every board and agency, uh, talking about race and how how has each uh, component of our conference how has it been doing uh, uh, in terms of uh, racism and, and and combating it and overcoming. Inequality, and so um, that has been our work, and uh, it this is this is hard work, and it is for the long haul. All right, Uh, this is for the long haul. So this is just the beginning of our work together, doing the truth telling and the truth discovery, because some of this stuff is not easy uh, to, uh, it's not easy, it's not easily accessible. Even like our conference data points or databases. Um, not everyone is identified by their race and so there's, there's been so much work to do to, to get the numbers right and to um, um, be able to really tell the truth so um, we, we are, are, are adapting and, and uh, doing the necessary work that we need to do to, to, to tell the truth of, as it relates to racism.
0: Thank you so much, Pastor Lee and thank you for your time. But I do have a question for Dr. Cologne, if, if you have some time. And if you guys have questions, you can ask. We'll ask one or two more. But Dr. Cologne, when I was in seminary with you, you, um, you had this quote. I'll never forget this quote. You said, churches, they want toppings on their pizza as a symbol of diversity. I, that's how churches think. They want toppings on their pizza, but they get bothered or... It, it, the conversation changes when we ask them, we, we begin to teach them how to make the dough. Do you remember this quote? <laughs> you don't remember this quote, huh? Okay. Oh, okay. Well, it was this question about churches love diversity, but when we're beginning to shift our leadership, that begins to change some important structures.
1: I don't remember the quote. This is a lesson for all of you who are pastors, preachers, that you, how you are heard, uh, may not be exactly what you said, and we'll see we'll that it was the Holy Spirit. But, but I, but to, in the spirit of, of your comment, I, I would note that, th- that the, this is hard work. Uh, it is hard work. And that I think the idea of journey something that has come up a number of times is a very important one, and, and and a commitment for the journey for the long haul, and to and to believing that God has to be a part of this work, or or otherwise uh, we might just uh, give up uh, because the signs are are, are very challenging and uh, and the difficulties. The, the resistance that arises as things start uh, to, uh, to progress uh, is real. And so I, I do believe that uh, I look at these matters with hope precisely because of the end that has been promised to us. Uh, so that it's, it's a sense of saying that the end that has been promised to us is quite different from where we are now. Uh, the, those visions of the, king, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, and so that gives me confidence that, if we stay on the journey, then uh, we as a people will find ways of coming together. But it's that vision of the end that needs to draw us and that needs to, and in a way that does not lead us to complacency to say, well, let God sort it got out, but as a way of exciting us for the journey and to deal with the disappointments that also come along the journey.
0: Thank you, Dr. Colon and sorry for putting you in the spot there. (laughs) That was a long time ago. Well, if there's no other questions, uh, we're going to go ahead and conclude our time. And again, thank you so much for everybody who participated, all of our speakers today, and we look forward to seeing you uh, on the first Wednesday of every month. Have a good day.